Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of MedTech POV, the podcast brought to you by AdvaMed, the world's largest trade association for medical technology companies. I'm your host, Scott Whitaker, president and CEO of AdvaMed. And today, we're pleased to have with us Nacho Abia, chief operating officer of the Olympus Corporation. Nacho began his career at Sony Electronics and joined Olympus Europe 20 years ago in May 2001 before steadily growing into executive leadership roles throughout the company. If you're like me, at some point you owned an Olympus camera, and some of you may be wondering how a camera company became an important and innovative play in the medical technology arena. We'll find that out today. Welcome, Nacho. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be with you today. So I always like to start these podcasts out, Nacho, giving the audience a bit of an understanding of the person that we're talking with today, a bit of their background. And so give us a little bit into your journey, where you uh, grew up and uh, how you got into the medical technology field. I'm born and raised in Spain. I grew, I, I born in a very nice small town in south of, uh, it's about 400 miles south of Barcelona called Alicante. But this was simply because my parents were in vacation there. So immediately right after we moved to Barcelona and I grew up there. I mean, I've been living downtown Barcelona for a big part of my life until I decided I wanted to go abroad and start some initiatives. So if I still call hometown to a place, that's Barcelona. Yeah. Although by now I start to struggle about between Barcelona and Pennsylvania, as it feels very good in Pennsylvania after 10 years of the yeah. Right. So, and, and I got in medical technology through me joining Olympus. And essentially, as you say, at the time I joined Olympus, I was coming from Sony Electronics. And then the reason I joined Olympus was for my background in consumer electronics 20 years right. ago. And then immediately I found out that uh, what I thought it was primarily a camera company, it has already very strong roots in uh, in life science and, and medical technology products. And, and actually, my first job in Olympus was to, to create and open the subsidiary in Spain that for a first years were only medical products. So that's when mm. I started my journey in the medical devices world. Yeah. Outside of your role in Olympus, you also have two young boys, right? I think eight and 11. Is that right? Yeah. They're my everything, I would say. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty family-oriented guy. And and I think the, the current age of my kids, I mean, they're going to be now nine soon and 12 tomorrow, actually, my oldest. Wow. It's a fantastic time to spend time with them. We, we are an outdoor family. We love to spend time outside, biking, running, hiking, fishing, whatever. And uh, and this age is perfect for that. So yeah, yeah they are my weekends and they are, they are any any spare time I have is uh, is for them. Well, my youngest of three is now 14 and uh, turning 15 in the fall. So you're making me feel a little bit old today, Nacho, to be honest with you. Those years, you're right. The years from uh, 8 to 12, in your case, a lot of fun, really a lot of fun. So I'm, they, still, I'm they still think that is a hero, right? So yeah, I that's right. That's right. I can tell you that's going to change. But for <laughs> now, they still feel good with me. I've got two in college and uh, hero and daddy are not in the same sentence usually when I'm uh, with them. So. <laughs> I'll enjoy that as long as it lasts. That's right. So how often do your kids get back to Barcelona, given that that's your original home? Well, normally, in normal circumstances, and the last year obviously has not been normal, but uh, but normally they would spend, my wife will take them probably for a month in summer for them to see the family, the grandparents, right. all of them there. So at least once a year, we go there for a few weeks or they go there for a few weeks. My two kids are, the second one was born here, the first one 
came when he was not even two years old. So for them, they are truly Pennsylvanians, but, uh, yeah. but we are trying to give them some flavor about what uh, the old Europe feels and offering those experiences to them. So yeah. once a year is what we normally do. This, uh, okay. fortunately, last year was not possible because of the COVID situation. Right. But that's what we try to do. Yeah, well, that's great for kids to be able to have that opportunity to have a home in Spain and family there and then in the United States as well. What a great way to grow up. So tell us a little bit about your educational background. You went to school, I assume, in Spain and yeah. were educated there. Yeah, I did. I did. I went to school in Barcelona. I got my master's in, in telecommunications and electronics engineering. Okay. And this is still an open debate I have with my father because the day I finished my master's, I got uh, two job offers. And, and one of those was to work in a pretty much R&D lab um, in designing antennas and telecommunication system, which is exactly what I was studying the last six years before, before that. The other job was in a marketing internship at Hewlett-Packard. And guess what I choose, right? Yeah. So I went to marketing and my father is still asking me, why the hell you went to an engineering school if you're planning to do marketing? And I Actually, I don't regret at all. I think that I've been working my whole life in, in technical or technology companies. And the, right. the engineering background helped me a lot on that, in being able to speak with engineers and understand the technology. But actually, not even for one day in my life, I really work as an engineer, right? So from the right. very beginning, I went to the business side. Yeah. And then obviously, I later on complete my education with, with some masters, and MBA and uh, other stuff as I was progressing more in, in business side. Remind me, how long did you spend at Sony before you transitioned to Olympus? I was for five years in Sony. Five, five years, okay. And you were in the marketing space there too, primarily? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. I was in, in the consumer electronics side. I was actually managing all the personal, what we call it personal entertainment equipment, which is everything that you can carry with you, including digital cameras at that time. And I spent some time in Spain first, managing that businesses for them in Spain. And then I moved to Amsterdam, where I spent the, the year before coming to Olympus. I, I was one year in Amsterdam working as a, as a European marketing manager for that business. So a true global career that you've had then in different countries throughout the world for the company. Very impressive. So tell us a little bit about Olympus and how, you know, most people don't think of them necessarily as a medical technology company, but you and I know that very well. But how did a technology company like Olympus get into the medical technology space and how long have they been in that space? We've been always there, I would say. But I think the way Olympus developed, I mean, I think, and the way Olympus created the branding uh, was very much based on the camera business. But actually, the right. company was founded uh, 101 years ago in 1919. And now 102 years ago now. So the first product that we commercialized was a microscope. And we have a picture of that microscope. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting piece. It was the first time that a Japanese manufacturer okay. uh, brought to the market something with which uh, was able to compete with, at that time, German optical technology. And since then, Olympus has been leading in the optoelectronics way. So 1936, we entered the camera market and we did our first uh, photo camera. And 1952, as a consequence, of collaboration with a GI doctor that uh, in Japan that came to us and say, well, you do cameras, you do microscopes. Is there any way that you can put a camera in the tip of a, of a tube so I can see inside the stomach without mm. having to open the stomach, which is not an easy thing to do? And then the engineers worked on that. And this was the first gastro camera, right? So, And this was commercial in 1952. So it was the first endoscope that, that literally was nothing else than a plastic tube with a camera on wow. top and a shutter that the doctor 
Hospital was present to take pictures. And since then, right? So I think since 1952, we've been in the medical space. We created the endoscopy space and we've been leading and dominating that world for many, many years. So essentially, Olympus has been in the medical technology field for more than 70 years. But as I say, right? So our branding was created based on our cameras. And as you say, right. many people had Olympus camera. And every time, I mean, even today, still, when I talk about Olympus, they say, oh, the camera company. They say, well, it used to be the camera company. But we always have been in medical technology. And obviously, since the smartphones came into the market and start taking over the photography landscape, I think that uh, over the last years, that market was declining very intensely. And, uh, right. and pretty much the only thing which is left is the professional camera market. And uh, to the point that uh, January 1st this year, we sold that business. So Olympus doesn't have any more cameras. Still, the wow. Olympus brand is available, but we sold it to a private equity company in Japan, and they carry the, the, the they're going to carry the brand for a few years. But uh, by now, Olympus is a medical technology equipment company. Right. 100%. So since you've been there for the last 20 years, talk about how Olympus has evolved in the 20 years you've been there in the medical technology space, and kind of give us a sense of what you see in the next few years as well. Well, the, when when I joined Olympus 20 years ago, the largest market for us was the camera business. This was the largest business we had. The medical technology started to grow at that time, but it was not that important. Over time, over the next decade, many things happened was with the digital camera booming and then the smartphones coming in and, and, and taking over that market very quickly. So it was kind of a roller coaster. We grew very fast on the digital camera wave, but then as fast as it grew, it went down when the smartphones came. As this was happening in the camera side, at the same time, it was very steady and, and firm efforts in to build our medical technology business, right? So what has evolved mostly was fundamentally, we have been always leading in the endoscopy, flexible endoscopy side. I mean, we have a massive market share in that space. And for whoever right. which is using a flexible endoscope, either in GI or in ENT or urology, whatever space you want, Olympus is there with, with a strong presence. But what we did, as we saw clearly the decline of the of the camera market was coming was to grow other areas and to grow into therapeutics areas much more than not only on, on optical imaging. And then over the last, started 15 years ago, we started to move into other spaces and to, we offer a much more broad range of products. And actually the first time that the company declared the, in 2012 was the first occasion that the company declared that uh, we are a medical technology company with mm. other businesses. Well, okay. for many years, we were a conglomerate of different businesses together. So you have a therapeutic solutions division, Nacho, and you've begun to grow that as well in the past few years as well, right? Indeed, we have. And actually, the, the way we divide our world in medical is what we call endoscopic solution division, which is something to do with visualization, right. visualization and imaging. And this is headquartered in Tokyo, and then our therapeutic solutions division, which has to do much more with devices and more specialities, which is actually headquartered in Boston. This was one decision that we took three years ago. So I think it was one big signal that the company was moving away from being an endoscope manufacturing based on right. the great technology that we have in order to become a more solid medical technology provider at a broader sense. And in order to do that, we moved that division. It was a big signal to the markets and also to the company. We moved that to Boston because we thought that Boston was a better place to right. find talent, to compete. It was more, most of our competitors were there. And since then, we're managing that part of the business from there. Also, because obviously the U.S. is the largest and more relevant market in that space. It's amazing what has happened with the company as you walk back through the history of it and the recognition by the leadership 
that the camera business was not going to be permanent, right? And we're going to have to make some adjustments going forward. We, as an industry, Nacho, we have been through this past year, an inflection point maybe for some of us as well, right? Understanding what's the world going to be like post-COVID, not only for our businesses that we operate, but for our employees and how we operate our companies as well. I want to take just a couple minutes to hear your thoughts and reflections on leadership during COVID-19 and how you have managed your employees and your business during this very challenging time and some of the lessons you've learned coming through that. Can you reflect on the past 15 months now and what you've learned leading Olympus? Yes, indeed. I think that this has been an extraordinary time, obviously a terrible situation for many people and many families. But I also think that the COVID situation has transformed and changed the way we work, the way we think. And I think it's going to be a before and after COVID. in the the way we conduct our life and our businesses. I think we went through the normal journey that everybody experienced or everybody that was managing a business, right? So I think the first, I remember in mid-March when we took the decision to shut down our offices and send people home and we thought that this was going to be for two weeks. And I think the first reaction was kind of panic, right? So I think we, we thought this, well, first of all, we need to protect our employees. We need to make sure that our employees are safe. Second, we need to protect our supply chain because many of the products we do are necessary necessary for patients and for physicians. So, and we have to make sure that our supply chain, worldwide supply chain. So this was completely unprecedented, right? So not, not only from our own manufacturing, but also from our providers, from our vendors. I mean, this caught all of us with a low guard. Nobody was expecting this. So this was the first kind of a reaction. I think over the next months, I think, well, we saw especially in the US and almost everywhere, but especially in the US, I saw that uh, when the elective procedures were canceled, I think this was also another concern concerned that what's going to happen with the business, what's going to happen with the cash flows, how can we manage that. But I think over time, as the things were recovering, and I think we all were start to adjust to the new normal. And the, I think at the end of the day, when you are in the space of medical technology, there are certain things that cannot wait, right? So I think at the end of the day, the patients need our product. And I think we had the responsibility to deliver those in whatever conditions, right? So right. I think we were adjusting to the situation. And as the year was progressing, I think the business world recovery, it was a little bit more clarity Then the vaccines were approved. All those was transitioning into the new normal. And I think now we are in the point where it's like, first of all, I think the U.S. things are going pretty well in terms of vaccination. Unfortunately, many other parts of the world are still dramatically struggling. Right. And, and so it still will take a while until we can call the new normality. But I think as a learning, there is a couple of things that resonates a lot in me. One is uh, unquestionable the need to be more adaptable, more flexible, yeah. more agile. Yeah. And I think the entire medtech space and, and Olympus in particular, I mean, we have shown that massively this time, right? So I think it's incredible what we have seen in the space. I mean, how, how, how fast we've been able to adapt to the new situation, to change product lines, to develop other products that, right. that weren't necessary at that time. So I think this is something that is going to be here to stay. And I think yeah. companies are going to have to develop that skill even further. The second thing is about the importance of a, of an engaged, uh, loyal, and trustable employee base. Yeah, and I can yeah. tell you that when, when we send home our, obviously, the, 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 except the supply chain people, except the manufacturing employees, 
everybody else was sent home. I think at some point it was a little bit, we had some flexible policies, some people could work from home, but not 100% of the people. And then we thought, well, how is this going to work? And I can tell you that our productivity levels, our engagement, the amount of communication we had, our employees uh, earn a massive right to be very much trusted, right? So that's going also to change the way we conduct business, the way we manage people, because they've proven they don't need to be managed. They need a direction. They need uh, guidance and they need goals to achieve. And they've proven that they can do that. That's another big learning. Yeah, we we knew we had great employees before. But I think if, if this COVID situation has proven something is that they are even greater than we thought. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. When do you see, Nacho, it coming back to what it was before as far as people working in the office versus working outside the office? Or do you think it's always going to be a very flexible hybrid environment for everyone, particularly Olympus? I don't see things coming back to where we were in 2019 by any means. I don't see things coming back First of all, from the way we conduct our business, I think that uh, that's another thing that we have discovered that we can do many more things more effectively with higher productivity, maybe traveling less. I think these virtual interactions are not perfect, but definitely are. I mean, are, are useful and, and it can work very well. So envision a world where we're going to end up in a mix between what was 2019 and what's 2020, right? So I think right. that we will continue with a lot of virtual interactions, but incorporating some face-to-face very much, which everybody's looking for very much. And to return of the office discussions, I think because of that trust that I was mentioning before that our employees earned during that time, I think majority of companies are going to offer a more flexible environment. And uh, And I think the concept of working every day from the office probably is going to change. It's going to adjust more to the needs of the employers. I think the the challenge then is is going to be, well, how can we create company culture? How can we engage teams? And we're going to have to find those the way, right? So I think that we're going to have to work with the teams to make sure that that working from home flexibility is not impacting this engagement or culture of the company, right? But things will not go back to where they were. And I think going to be different, not worse than before. I think simply different. And it's going to offer as well from an employee perspective, it's going to offer them more flexibility and to adjust and to uh, manage their work-life balance in a better way. And I think this is a good thing to have. Back to the business side of COVID for a minute. The second quarter was tough for everybody in this space, right? And you saw uh, revenue declines that were significant, inevitable, right? That it was going to happen. And then in the third and fourth quarter, we started to see things come back, in some cases slowly, in other cases more quickly. Was that a similar path for you? Bad second quarter, better third, better fourth, and you just continue to make progress? Or did you see a major jump at any point in time? Well, the, I think the biggest jump was was uh, from the second to the third quarter, right? So yeah. I think the second quarter was pretty terrible for, for everybody for known reasons. I think that uh, this was across the industry, depending on what kind of products you have, you were more or less impacted. But I think across the industry was difficult. Already in the third quarter, we saw things start to normalize. I also would say that geographically and uh, things were tougher in the U.S. than in other places. Europe, for example, I guess that I University of Europe help in this environment. I mean, some government reacted with uh, with significant investment in healthcare. So that right. so I think Europe has been less impacted by the whole thing. So I think overall, in the third quarter, we saw that things started to stabilize. Well, fourth quarter was better. And our last quarter of our fiscal year that just ended in March, which is the first yeah. quarter of this calendar year, this has been uh, pretty nice. And now we're starting to compare against last year where, where it was already impacted by COVID a little bit. So right. I think that it's not going to 
to be easy to see how business are going. I think we don't want to compare well against 2020. We want to right. compare about 2019 in right. order to see how things are. But I think the business is back, and uh, I would say almost 100%, if not 100% back. And we are seeing okay. that recovery. We know that the specialty by specialty, some procedures are not yet back. And I think yeah. this is, again, from a patient point of view, I think that still in some areas, we don't see the same activity in 2019. One of the areas that uh, I think, and for whoever that might listen to this podcast, I would encourage them to go back to the preventive colonoscopy, right? So I think prevention in colon cancer and in any other cancer is going to be a key. And this is one of the things that we've seen, obviously, slowdown because, yeah, Everybody thinks that you can wait another six months until situation is more clear and right. there is less risk. Well, I think now we have to bring all these people back and we have to campaign for all those people to be back to avoid a right. worse situation in future, right? So I think it's still not, procedure level is not recovered 100%, depending on the speciality. I think we're yeah. getting there. So it's an encouraging sign. I mean, you talk about prevention. I read a statistic recently that there was, I think it was a 40% drop in cancer diagnoses during 2020. That obviously was not being because of the fact that fewer people were getting cancer, right? It clearly has a lot to do with the fact that people just weren't going in for their screenings. And it does worry you about the next few years, right? If people aren't going back to the doctor quickly enough. It does. And I think we are still on time to mitigate that. I think that we need the people to get back to the screening activities, wherever they right. are, whatever kind of cancer it might be a screening to. But I, th I think it's important. The other good thing by now is that the healthcare institutions all over, and especially in the U.S., have done a fantastic job in order to prepare themselves yeah. to handle the COVID. I mean, it was a bit chaotic, especially on the first months, and everybody needed to adjust, but they did a phenomenal job as well. And I think now it's safe, and on top, now we have the vaccine rolling out very well in the U.S. So I think we need to bring patients back. I think yeah. that this is, this is important, and, and I think collectively, the industry, we need to also take our portion and helping and helping in the communication. I mean, it, it's safe to go back, and it's definitely something something that uh, will prevent them to get in serious troubles in the future. Yeah. That, that's one of the door areas that we are actively trying to engage with patients and explaining them the positive story of coming back now and not yeah. later. Well, I want to go back to something you said earlier in the context of COVID, the importance of a strong employee base and listening to your employees and trusting your employees. Because one of the things that is a passion of yours and you've led at Olympus is the diversity, equity, and inclusion work at Olympus. And talk about that and why, Nacho, that's such a passion of yours and what you're doing at Olympus in that area. Well, from a personal point of view, I think that uh, many years ago, I took the decision to uh, to, to follow my, my career abroad. And then I started to be living in places where I was I was a minority, if you want. I was an immigrant in Netherlands, in Germany. And, and 10 years ago, I came here to the US. So I think to some extent, I think I developed some sensitivity to this. And I think all over the world, because this is not only a problem in the US, I think that wherever you go, there is bigotry and there is people that they don't accept the difference and they don't like the difference and there. So I think this is something that I think it's not that I have really bad experiences or terrible experience myself, but I've seen these situations and right. I think I'm very sensitive to those. The experience at Olympus, I think it was uh, actually one of the things I'm, I'm very proud about. Once again, is about our employee base, right? Because our diversity and inclusion efforts 
started really on a grassroots exercise. It was the team members, the, the, the employees, they started to organize themselves. They created community affinity networks. And they were doing that with a blessing from the management, but not much support, right? So it right. was growing from, and uh, and it was a very nice movement to, to see growing and, and to understand that people care about those topics and they wanted to, at the end of the day, create a better world, which is what I believe is behind diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative, right? right. And then at some point, I realized, I said, well, this is fantastic and this this people is doing a great job, but it's not enough. We have to, as a company, we have to provide them support. We have to support them. And this is when we started to create our own infrastructure to support them, to provide a little bit more budget for them to do. And then is when we have continued doing. We spend a lot of time on education, I think. Unconscious bias is one of the most difficult barriers to overcome. And I think to participate in those sessions, I think that many times you discover things that you never thought that, I mean, most of us, we think that we are good people and that we are tolerant and things like that. But then when you are in those situations, you discover that, well, there might be things that you need to think twice about. So we do a lot of an education. We do a lot of um, positive promotion of diversity. We don't have quotas, but we really tell a lot about promotion. We publish numbers, we share the numbers with the people, and we spend a lot of time talking about the benefits of diversity, right? So right. I think why diversity is good. I think that uh, there are a lot of studies that shows that uh, in, in, in whatever group, I mean, the more different opinions we have, the better the outcome is going to be. So we're trying to make this part of the organization. But I think even today, still, this is working nicely at Olympus precisely because it's a movement that started from inside, but right. now it's paired with the support of the management. And now I think we are in a, in a sweet spot right now on what we can do. And I strongly believe that, as I say, tolerance, respect for the difference and, and appreciation of diversity, it's all going to contribute to create a, a better place to work first and a, and a better world later, right? So and I think that's what is, uh, is something which is great when you see your employees truly engage in this initiative. And it's really very encouraging for any people manager and really inspire you to help and to support those as much as you can. Right. You know, the thing that has struck me about DE&I, the diversity, equity and inclusion movement is not only is it the right thing for us to do as leaders from a moral standpoint and an ethical standpoint. What we've also learned is it's right for our businesses as well, right? right? We right. operate better when we are more diverse and more inclusive in the way that we think about our businesses and our employee base as well. And when you put those two pieces together, it's a no-brainer, right? We just have to do more in this space. Absolutely. And that's exactly, I mean, this last piece is something forgotten in the advocacy efforts on, on, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think it's important to remark, I mean, that uh, you perform better when you have a diverse team and you listen from more people and you respect, right. again, tolerance for the different opinions, because it goes along with respecting everybody, listening from everybody, understanding everybody can bring value. And no matter what is the origin, the thought, this, obviously the right. sex the, or the belief whatever I think this doesn't matter when it's about putting thoughts together and creating something right, right. So it's, it's an important element of the promotion of the movement and of course the patients that we serve are completely diverse so we have to have companies that represent that right there are no biases when we're treating someone for cancer or some other form of therapy right everyone's in need so one other piece of this Nacho I understand you have a particular uh, passion around the LGBT Q community and some of the work you've done at Olympus particularly. Can you speak about that element of your work? 
I'm probably a little bit biased in that sense because some of my best friends are part of that community. And in some instances of my life, I've seen, I mean, especially impacted by bigotry and, and lack of tolerance right. on, on those. So I think it's a collective that has been probably historically punished even more than others, right? At some point in the history, I mean, with some social stigma. So what I can see in the last years in Olympus is in, in the moment you start talking about all these initiatives and the positive of it and the embracement of diversity is when you start to see people speaking up and explaining their stories. It's nice to see. And I think, again, it's becoming very personal because I believe that some people make judgments in the distance. But when you start to get in touch with those diverse people or those minorities or those whatever, and you work with them and you talk with them and you realize that they are as wonderful people as everybody else, of course. right? right? So, but I think when you have that personal interaction, I think that uh, things Things become easier and even better. As a collective, I think it's one of the collectives that I think needs more support in order to whatever is left from any bigotry in the world. I think we have to take this away and move forward and 100% normalize right. that in any environment, right? So I right. think that's what, again, probably I have that sensitivity develop over years, as I say, some of my best friends are, yeah. are gays, and, and I think that this is uh, something I, I developed from sensitivity over time. Yeah, well, that's great. Let me shift back to uh, the business side for a minute. You've obviously, as you mentioned at the top of this, worked all over the world for Olympus and other companies as well. You've seen different regulatory systems and how well they've worked, right? And I think of two major ones where you've had a lot of experience. You look at Europe and the way they regulate medical technology device products. You look at the U.S., and the way we regulate through the FDA uh, and CMS, medical device and technology products. Are there elements of learnings from Europe that the U.S. system could benefit from and then vice versa the other way around, Nacho, given your experience? Well, I don't know if, if they can benefit, but I think definitely it's there are differences. And I think and the environment is changing as well. It's not the same environment, right. neither in the FDA, not in Europe, obviously, uh, 10 years ago that it is today. I think the obvious in Europe, at least until now, because now, honestly speaking, with the medical device regulation, which is coming, I think still there is a lot of unknowns about how this is really going to look like, probably closer to the FDA than when it was before. For me, the biggest difference is that traditionally it has been easy to put a product in the European market than right. in the market. I don't know how good or how bad it is. I think that uh, this has been a fact. I think that at the same time in Europe, and um, you have to deal with a number of regulators, right? So the C mark is unique, but then from adverse event reporting and, and, and from many other areas, you still have to deal with every country regulator, which is adding uh, a lot of bureaucracy on the, on the system. So I would say when I think in the FDA, one of the things I learned in my time in the US is that actually I believe the FDA does a very good job in protecting patients. Yeah, the process is more stringent, it's more strict, there is more demand. But at the end of the day, I think that the folks at the FDA, they really have a strong sense of mission and it's a great mission, right? So I think someone has to do this job. Someone has to make sure that the products that we bring to the market are safe and efficient for the purpose that they are designed. And this elevates the standard of the entire industry, right? So I think that that's something that uh, we, we, we have to make sure that we satisfy those requirements. And by doing that, the quality of our products and is also increasing in our attention to these topics. The, the not as good part of, of that caring of the patient is obviously the speed, is the efficiency, is the, right. is, 
is the complicated processes. I think this is still what we all would like to see uh, an FDA and a CMS, which is obviously, I mean, more agile and, and, and more flexible in certain things. Innovative technologies is one of those cases where I think it's not easy to bring an innovative product to the market. And, and when we think about large companies, yeah, we might entertain the whole process of bringing an innovative arc and the, and the famous uh, ballet of death yeah. until, until you can start getting revenues from those products. But it's terrible for the startup ecosystem, which is actually... I mean, it's actually it's where you really have amazing innovation, right? And it's terrible right. for them. It's starting to survive. This is something that I, I truly hope. And I, and I know they pay attention to that and they care about that. But I, I also hope that they will see more movement in that and more accelerated pathways to market, right? So as, uh, right. I know Advomed is, is working on all those. So I don't know if I can choose or pick between the European and the and, yeah. and FDA. I think that there is no doubt that as a medical industry as a whole, we need to make sure that our patients are offered the right product, the right way, with the right safeties and everything else. But I think there needs to be a compromise also to bring in innovative technologies that can save lives into the market faster, right? So will we ever get to the point of the sweet spot of uh, yeah, speed yeah. and safety? I don't know. But I think that that's what we need to keep working in, in that direction. I've often said to regulators when I talk to them, as long as there's clarity, transparency, and predictability in the regulatory system, we can make it work. But without any one of those three, it gets very difficult for companies to solve problems. And I will add efficiency to that. Yeah, right? efficiency as well. Efficiency, because there can be clarity and, yeah. and predictability, but we need the process to be more efficient as well, right? So and right. I think, uh, and, and again, making sure that when someone has a great product or a great technology that can save lives or improve patients' quality, I mean, it needs to be a pathway for that product to get into the market faster and to get also, not, not only to get the product into the market, but also to get the economics behind that uh, right. work for those companies company developing those products, right? So I yeah. think that this is probably the next chapter for our regulator in the U.S. Right. And, and and also one of the pillars I've been for many years, and I know it will continue to be. As we wrap up here, if the listener could see what I see over your right shoulder is a motto for Olympus, which is making people's lives healthier, safer, and more fulfilling, which is at the heart of everything you're about and what you do. Give us a window into what the next five or 10 years looks like for Olympus and some of the things that are exciting in your mind about the future. I would answer in two ways. I think one, from a patient perspective and from our contribution, I think we are in a question. We have a lot of products and we are participating in many specialities, but I think Olympus is particularly keen on mitigating the impact of cancer in the world. We've been playing a very significant role in colon cancer for decades. We play a significant role in lung cancer and in other kinds of cancers. And I think that uh, the, the, the advancement in technology over the last 10, 20 years in being able to predict the screen early treatment is massive. And I think when I look what we have in our pipelines and, and, and the products that we are developing and bringing to the market, I'm very hopeful that the step-by-step step we're getting to, a, if not to a cancer-free world, definitely a world where cancer doesn't kill people, right? So right. as much as possible. And that's very exciting from, from that perspective. From the other perspective, I think that Olympus is in a journey to become 
global medical technology company. And I think a colleague of mine used to call Olympus the $8 billion startup because in many areas, we still have to learn a lot from the big companies that has been in the space for more decades than, than we are, at least as a medical device companies. So I think we will continue our journey of globalizing ourselves and uh, with a strong heritage in our Japanese roots as a company, but globalizing ourselves, making sure that uh, we provide the right solution for the right customer anywhere in the world. I want to close with this because you mentioned cancer. I know you have committed a lot of your own personal time and that of Olympus as well to cancer research and work to prevent cancer. You participate in, if I'm saying it correctly, Tour de Touche, an event that's focused on raising money for cancer. Can you talk about that and your passion around that event and your role in it? Yeah, this is actually a, it's a nice personal experience. I think many years ago, uh, eight, seven, eight years ago, a cancer survivor here in our Central Valley, Pennsylvania headquarters literally knocked to our door and say, well, I mean, I'm a cancer survivor. I'm alive and I would like to do something. And, and then he was pitching us to say, well, well, I would like to do this tour de touche. It started to be a bicycle race and to create awareness. And the person that uh, was having that conversation, God bless her, say, yeah, absolutely. We're going to help you to do this. Well, this has evolved of the year on uh, this Tour de Touche is a bicycle race that now not only happening in, in here in, in Pennsylvania, but happening nationwide. There are many events under the Color Cancer Coalition. It's a fundraiser event for to create awareness, but it's also bringing a lot of people to those races and those events, including many of our employees. And again, it's one of the areas where we feel particularly engaged with and I think we share some responsibility as well. I, I like to bike a lot, so I've been right. participating from the very beginning. I haven't missed even one, even now that it's done virtual, right? So you race on yourself on the last two years. We have had to do that because of the COVID, but I still take my bike and, and go ride a few miles uh, for that course. It's one of the nicest opportunities that we have to promote something that, as I say, we believe, which is again, if we cannot eliminate it, let's mitigate as much as we can the yeah. cancer effects in the world. Well, that's great, and thank you your work and leadership in that. Well, Nacho, we appreciate your time today. We've learned a lot, but one thing that stands out that we've learned is Olympus is no longer a camera company. It is one of the most impressive and effective medical technology companies in the world. And so we thank you for your work and your leadership. We thank you for your time and investment in AdvoMed and your support of the industry more broadly. So thank you for taking time with us today. Thank you, Scott. A pleasure to be here and uh, looking forward to continue working with you and the other AdvoMed folks to advance our agenda to have a better world and uh, and to take care of our patients and the, and the customers we have. So thank you. Very well said. And for those of you who are listening, thanks for tuning in. For more episodes, you can visit advamed.org slash podcast or subscribe to the MedTech POV podcast on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time, this is Scott Whitaker. Thanks for joining us. Have a great day.